those who rebelled against the Catholic Church, protested against them, are saying that the righteousness is not just something that's given to us like credit, it's actually fully attributed to our account and fully imputed to pay off all debt of sin and counts us 100. At the, at the moment of salvation, we are counted as 100% righteous because, everybody get this, the imputation of credit is Christ. And when Christ gives us his righteousness, he doesn't give it to us 25%, 50%. One touch of the blood of Jesus will make you as white as snow. When Christ comes into your heart, you receive all the righteousness you could ever need. Therefore, what Christianity is, is not you earning more merit, earning more credit. It's based on you receiving the credit or the imputation of the fullness of Christ's righteousness and then living in his righteousness. Everybody say, in him. And thank you. That's the whole book of Ephesians, and we've done a series on that, so that you are not progressing in your credit. The full credit has been given. The full imputation was the word that they used because it comes a bit stronger than I think than credit because you don't think of, uh, of having more imputation. You might think of more credit, but you may not think of more imputation. That was the rabbit trail that we went on. But look at the point clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Who is the person that is being referred to as him here? Jesus, amen? God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become little by little by little by little the righteousness of God. No, so that we might definitively become the righteousness of God. That is the moment you accept Christ. That's why I look at verse 17 of the same chapter. We teach it in our Bible lessons. It's very important. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Does everybody see how clear that is? As, and look in verse, at verse 21, please. As much of sin that Christ took is as much of righteousness that we give. So how much of sin did Jesus take on the cross? All. How much of righteousness do we receive? All. So there's no deficit. Do you see the comparison? He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So we were once sinful, not, not righteous. Now we're righteous, no longer sinful. Do you get that? Christ was righteous and became sin upon the cross while he bore our sins so that we might become righteous. So the, the idea is here, there's been a perfect exchange. It's not like Christ took partial of our sins, and then now he gives us partial righteousness. That's not how it works. He took all of our sins that he might give us all the righteousness that we need. I'll show it to you again. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And Galatians, which is sad that they use these verses to twist to mean what they try to make it mean with the credit increasing, actually teaches the exact opposite. Abraham did not re increase in righteousness by being circumcised. That's the exact opposite of what's being taught. Abraham was made righteous by believing. Then he was circumcised. Then he did these different things. But those different works that he did never added to his righteousness. That's the whole point of what Galatians is saying. So the very fact that they did 
take it out of context to make it look like you're increasing in righteousness not only is against the context of the actual verse and what happened in Abraham's life, it's against the whole context of the book of Galatians. Can I hear an amen? Thank you. Now, do good works play a role in the believer's life? Yes, but not for righteousness. Notice it from the, the famous passage, Ephesians 2.8. For it is by grace you have been saved. Does it say by merit you have been saved? You see, if that's true according to if Roman Catholicism and the churches that believe like them, Greek Orthodox and so forth, if what they're saying is true, then it would have to be just like what the Mormons say. You're saved by grace after having done everything that you can do. Remember when we introduced the false gospel of Mormonism when we were reading 2 Nephi? That's what they twist the Ephesians passage to say. You're saved by grace after you've done everything you can do. That's what it would have to say if the Roman Catholics are right. You're saved by grace and your merit and the merit of Mary and the merit of all these other saints. But it doesn't say grace plus this plus this plus this equals salvation, does it? It's grace plus nothing equals salvation, the grace of God. So it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So how do we get that through faith? Through our merit? Through us doing more good works? No, through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's not from you. It is what? Come on, somebody say, what is it? The gift of God. What is it? The gift of God, not by works, not by merit, not by a saint's good works. It's not by anybody's good works. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. Don't you think that Mary could boast on Judgment Day if she's given out merit to people? Hey, look at all the merit that I'm able to give you. Now, they might say, well, she still got it from God. Yeah, but she has something that she could take uh, credit for as she gives us credit. The Bible is so clear that whatever Abraham received as of credit, it did not come from Abraham. It came from God alone. Everybody tracking with me. So whatever we get as in rewards because of things we've done, we give that all back to God. You know, we'll be rewarded for our actions and our attributes. But remember, that's not righteousness. Just because I've done good things, that doesn't mean that I've earned that reward. I've done it based on God's good work. And it doesn't increase me. Because I pray more, it doesn't make me more of a new creature. How, you know, we just read in the Bible, you're new in Christ, a new creation. How much more new can you be than new? If you're a new creation, can you get more new? If the toy is wrapped up, unopened in the box, right, and you're giving these kids things to your kids, and he says, well, I want it more new than this. What can you possibly say? You, you know, there's not more new than new. When I was made a new creation, do I get more newness? No. As a matter of fact, hi, um, open up a new tab, please, Romans chapter 12. What happens in the mind is actually, actually a renewing, a transformation towards what you've already been given. No minutes in Romans 12. Verse 1, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed. Somebody say transformed. By the renewing. Come on, help me out. Somebody say be transformed. By the renewing of your mind. Now, brother, highlight the word transformed for me, please. Transform is where we get the word metamorphosized. That metamorphosis, uh, go ahead and tap on it so they can see the Greek there. The metamorpho, that process that happens, is in our mind. But what is being transformed in our mind? What is, what is the end goal of this? Now highlight on, uh, tap on renewing, please. 
It is to be made new in the image that we were created again, uh, cre created in. When I was born again, was my mind made new according to the Bible? Yes, my mind was made new. As I live, if I think things that are wrong, what am I supposed to do? Renew them to the things that I was given at salvation. Do you or do you not have the mind of Christ right now? You do have the, I thought you're trying to get it according to them. No, you have the mind of Christ. Let me show it to you in Colossians. Everybody go to Colossians, please. Mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is given to us at salvation. I have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Look at how Paul talks about this. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden in Christ. When Christ comes, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So your mind is on the things of Christ. Now go to 2 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 2. The difference between the sinful person and the Christian is that the Christian has the mind of Christ where the sinner doesn't. The Christian is able to say, I have the mind of Christ because I have been born into the image of God. 2 Corinthians, look at it here. Oh, mind of Christ. Somebody find it for me. Let's look at it. I thought I had it right here. There you go, 216. I, I was in the right place. Oh, it's 1 Corinthians. Wrong place. But right chapter, 216, there we go. Thank you. So I, I'm, getting, I'm getting better from last week. Lord, humble me again, right? Humble me again, Jesus. Look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have what? The mind of Christ. Now put that back with Colossians. Go back to the Colossians passage, please. Look at the Colossians passage, Colossians chapter 3. You've been raised with Christ. Where are you right now? Raised with Christ. Where is your mind? With Christ. What does Corinthians say you have? What do you actually possess? The mind of Christ. Now going back to Romans chapter 12. When the mind is born again, when your life has been changed, do you always think the way you're supposed to? No. Do you always act the way you're supposed to? So what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to be transformed in your thinking by being brought back to the mind of Christ. Otherwise, what is my mind being renewed to? Sometimes people think, well, it's continuing to try to get to the mind of Christ. So right now you have like 70% the mind of Christ. Then, then you're going to have 75% the mind of Christ. Some days you only have 60. First of all, that's not at all how the Scripture looks at it. When you are born again, new, made a new creation, the you is new. How much more clear could it be? You're a new creation. The you is new. And so now what are you supposed to do is think new. So when I was born again, my mind was washed. How many believe your mind was washed when you were born again? How many believe you were given a new heart? Right? And a willingness to serve God. All of these things came on the inside. But how many know when you started living for Jesus, you realized that there were temptations and things that drew you away from that? The flesh, as we're going to get to in the book of Galatians. But when you were drawn away by that, and let's say you gave into it and sinned, that doesn't mean you didn't have the mind of Christ. What it means is you didn't set your mind on the things of Christ. You set the mind that God gave you, that new mind, on the flesh. Go to Romans chapter 8, please. 
And the problem with that is, is that when people try to now tell us we need all these extra steps to be renewed in our mind as Christians, like being having demons cast out or so forth, they're not understanding that you can't cast out the flesh. The spiritual world is not what's giving you the issue when you're being tempted, though you can be tempted by the spiritual world. But what's really happening is your own flesh is tempting you. That's why, as I've described before as a Christian, why is it I'm not tempted by homosexuality? Because my flesh doesn't want homosexuality. Does everybody get that? So to say to somebody who's tempted by homosexuality that they have a demon of homosexuality, even after a Christian, becoming a Christian, is ridiculous. Do you say I have a demon of adultery because I am tempted to have an adulterous affair? Do you think that I have a demon of anger because I'm tempted to be angry after becoming a Christian? No, these are the things of the flesh. So go to Romans chapter 8. Look at Romans chapter 8, starting, in, starting around verse 5. Look at what it says. Those who live according to the flesh have their what? Have their minds set on what the what desires? The flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the what? The spirit have their minds set on what? What the spirit desires. Now look at verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh is what? Death. Thank you. The mind governed by the spirit is what? Life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So the people who try to say... Well, I have a mind of the flesh and I have a mind of the spirit are contradicting the scriptures. You can't have both. The mind of the flesh cannot ever submit to the things of God. So if you are a Christian and have ever done anything with your mind that has pleased God, you know you cannot have had the mind of the flesh. You don't come in and out of these realms, in other words. I'll show you in just a moment. Look at verse um, 7. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. See, somebody say that's a realm. Now notice Paul. Use his own words. There's a realm of the flesh. You cannot please God. And some people go, well, I go in and out of the realm of the flesh as a Christian. No, you don't. Watch what it says. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. So what determines your realm? The Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are not in the realm of the flesh. Now, if you have backslid and the Spirit of the Lord has departed from you, by default, what realm are you then back in? The realm of the flesh. These are the two realms. These are the two ways that people live. Now watch this. It says, you are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit, if indeed, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death, notice having a body Subject to death does not mean you're in the realm of the flesh. I am in the realm of the spirit with a body subject to death. Does everybody get that? That flesh must die. I must receive a resurrected flesh. But I am not born again, again, when my body dies. 
That which was born again, November 5th, 1995, goes directly to heaven as it is now, doesn't need to go to purgatory, goes directly into the presence of God. There is no sanctification, in other words, that happens when you die. Something doesn't change on the inside of you because your body died. The Bible calls it a tent. You have simply taken off that tent, and now you are free without a body of death that has sinned you are free now to enter the presence of God. Then you and I will receive a resurrected body as Christ's resurrected body and dwell forever with our new spiritual soul in a new resurrected glorified body. Can I hear an amen? It's very simple if you read the scriptures. So you're not in the realm of the flesh, but you have an earthly body. Now watch what he says about this body. He says, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, because this body has sinned, it must die or be transformed at the rapture, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. So even though my body has sin and it is a body of death, the spirit in me sanctifies my body. Do you get that? So even somebody says, well, a demon can be in your soul. No, it can't be there. My mind is the mind of Christ. I have the same mind he does. How can it dwell in the mind of Christ? Oh, but it dwells in your flesh. No, my flesh has been given life because of the righteousness of God. So my body is also righteous. That's why Paul said to be blameless in your body, soul, and spirit. All three parts of the human are sanctified in Christ. Now notice, then it goes on to the end end goal. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body because of the spirit that now lives in you. Does everybody get that? Now the command comes. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Notice the you is not your flesh. The soul that sinneth shall die. The soul in the flesh that sins shall die. The death is eternal separation from God. But if by the Spirit you put to death, cast out demons, is that what it says? No, it says if by the Spirit you what? Put to death the misdeeds of your body. The body you put to death those misdeeds, you will live. So it's those who are led by the Spirit of God are really the children of God. Going back now to Galatians chapter 3, putting it all together. We are made righteous the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, just like Abraham was. Yet, in the new covenant, we're made internally like Christ and his righteousness as we're born again, which Abraham had not received. I want to show you that as well, that they waited for us. Go to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. So that with us, we might receive the promise with them. And this is where I want to show you what happened at Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. What happened when Christ was buried and rose again from the dead for these saints of the past who had not yet received the regeneration, the full imputation? 
Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. These, talking about all of those starting in the chapter of faith, Hebrews 11, talking about Abraham, Moses, all of these, it says, these were all commended for their faith. What did they have? Did they have merit? Did they have, uh, you know, earned righteousness? No, what were they commended for? Their faith. But by faith, when you follow the scriptures, they did something. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Moses did this. By faith. But remember, it had nothing to do with crediting them merit or righteousness. They were made righteous by faith, and then because of that, they did all of these things. They were all commended for their faith. Now watch. Yet none of them received what was promised. We're talking about being children of promise with Abraham. By faith we're saved. But hold on. I thought they were saved. Ah, they were, but they had not yet been born again. They had not had the full imputation of Christ's righteousness. That's why when Jesus tells the parable of the two places of, of, of after death, there's uh, Abraham's bosom, which is known as paradise, and then there's Hades, Sheol, uh, the place in Sheol known as Hades, which is a place of torment, right? And then the rich man tries to come over there, or at least want Lazarus to come over and dip his finger in the water. Remember the, the, the beggar, right? Does everybody remember these stories? Okay. If you don't, you have to go back and track with it. Otherwise, it will take too long for me now to read those. But there was a gulf between them. They could see each other. But the Bible says, at the crucifixion and the burial of Christ, unto his resurrection, he goes to preach to those spirits in prison, and he goes to lead captive those uh, lead captivity captive into the presence of his father. One is in Peter. One is in Ephesians. That talks about what Christ does while he's in the grave. He goes and he condemns those that are in that place of hell, and he now puts them into a place of judgment to wait for his final day of judgment. So what they rejected in part in the old covenant, he now says to them, you are rejecting me. So he preaches to them the judgment of them rejecting Noah's word, Moses' word, because that was really all God's word. Can I hear an amen to that? But then he leads captivity captive. Ephesians chapter 4 says, and he ascends into heaven, and then he gives gifts to men, which is the gifts of the church, right? So he brings Abraham into heaven. He brings Isaac into heaven. He brings Moses into heaven because that place that was known as paradise or Abraham's bosom, the place close to Abraham, that was a place for the departed souls, not purgatory, but they were there to wait until the crucifixion because all that they were doing by the sacrifices and all that was not able to cleanse their souls to bring them into the presence of God. Heaven had not yet even been cleansed because of Satan's rebellion. The Bible says that Christ had to go into the actual temple of heaven and present his blood there, sanctify heaven from Satan's sin, and sanctify all those saints of the past. Are you listening? I wish I had time to go through every one of these scriptures. Okay, I, I'm almost tempted to right now. Help me, Holy Ghost. Let me just see how much you follow with me and take my word, because otherwise I will take you to every single one of these scriptures. Okay? But now I want you to get this. These were all commended for their faith, all of those Old Testament saints. Yet none of them received what had been promised. Some people think that was the promised land. No, the people that are mentioned there were in the promised land. Not all of them, but some of them. The promise is not the promised land. It's Christ inside of you being the temple of God. That is the promise that Abraham was waiting for. Not just dirt, but being made the dwelling of God. Are you guys listening to me? And I'll show it to you. It's right here. Yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us 
In the New Testament, these are the writers of, of the New Testament, the apostles. I believe this is Paul speaking here. That was, they had not received this yet because God had planned something better for us that only together with us would they be made perfect. Do you see what that is? Abraham could not be perfected by the righteousness of Christ until Christ did it in the new covenant. And when the disciples got it, they got it. From that point forward, we now get the perfection of Christ at the time of salvation. We don't have to look forward to something else. So in Abraham's bosom, it was a place of paradise and joy and pleasure, but they knew they were not yet in the presence of God. They had not yet been perfected. They had not yet been given the righteousness of Christ. They had been promised this salvation. They had been promised that they would be with God forever, that they would be transformed in their inner person. They had been waiting for that. They believed that. They prophesied about that. The new heart and the new spirit, Ezekiel and Jeremiah talked about it, but they had not been able to receive it until Christ did his work on the cross. So imagine what that beautiful day was like when Christ regenerates all the Old Testament saints and then breathes into his disciples the spirit to be regenerated, imagine what party that was like in heaven. All of these people being ushered into the presence of God, now being regenerated, counting down the last days, and then the church on earth receiving the regeneration and the righteousness of Christ. And so it even gets better than this when you understand it because it says that we were made perfect together. So this is what you have to ask. Was anything imperfect given to Abraham at this moment of redemption? Then what did you get? See, how can you say, I got something jacked up at the moment of Christ's redemption when it says here, I got exactly what Abraham got when he was in Shoal. When he was waiting, and Abraham, Shoal had two compartments. One was Abraham's bosom. The other one was torment, known as Hades or hell, okay? When they got it, they got it perfect, right? How did, how did I get it? I got it perfect as well. And that's why when you study the book of Hebrews, and the Bible talks about that he makes us perfect, that's what he's continuing to say over and over again, because what they had been waiting for, we had now been given. Let me show you a few more times in Hebrews, just so you can get it. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, before this passage. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Whatever they got from Abraham's bosom, I got the day I, I was saved. Does everybody see that? I'm going to make sure you get it today, baby boo. Do you get it? So the day Abraham saw Christ in redemption at the burial or whatever that was going on those three days, when he received a regeneration, was it perfect or imperfect? Perfect. And then when the disciples saw Christ and he breathed on them, what kind of regeneration did they get? Perfect or imperfect? Perfect. There you go. Now look at it again. He, he says it so many times uh, in Hebrews. Look at Hebrews 10, 14. For by how many sacrifices? For by one sacrifice he has made what? Perfect for how long? Forever those who are being what? Made holy. Or those who are holy, depending on what version you read, we'll put it in the past or uh, put it in the present or the future tense. I can be made holy in my behavior while I'm perfect in my nature. In other words, I was made sinless to sin less. First, you are changed inwardly. Then you change outwardly in your behaviors. Everybody get that? 
Okay, now going back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not uh, of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Now notice what it continues on to say, that uh, we are the handiwork or the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works which God prepared for us to do. Now notice the difference of language. You're saved by grace through faith, but you do good works to please God or that which he has prepared for you to do. There is nothing in your good works that goes back in time to you being created new in Christ Jesus. Does everybody see that? We were made a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, in Christ Jesus, right? So now do my works have anything to do with me being created a perfect and holy as Abraham was regenerated? Does anything here go back into this? Absolutely not. Notice the flow. You are saved. You are sanctified, perfected in Christ, given the same thing Abraham was given. You are made the good work of God. This is what he calls you, God's handiwork. He doesn't call you some walking dead, half demon possessed, half jacked up, needing merit from so-and-so or deliverance. No, from other person. He says you are God's what? Handiwork. That's what you are, God's creation, new creation. And what are you created to do? To do those good works. Now, if we just keep in our mind everything that we've learned, if we go into Romans and we find ourselves being tempted by the things that used to tempt us, do we now say, my mind is in the realm of the flesh, I need more merit, I need more deliverance? Remember, these things are tied together. Roman Catholicism and superstitious uh, Pentecostal kookery are tied together in unbiblical sanctification. And those who have fallen for I defend you and I love you. I don't hold it against you if you didn't know better, but now you know and you can set them free from this ridiculousness. But, but they're both the same. Do you guys understand that they're both a works based salvation sanctification and neither one of them exists in the scripture but notice this if as a christian born again perfected in christ new creation handiwork of god you get tempted to sin do you say you're in the realm of the flesh no you say you have the mind of christ you say you're in the realm of the spirit but your mortal body your flesh is deceiving you Therefore, you go to Romans chapter 12, which comes after 8, and you ask God to renew you in your mind. Put your mind back to the new. And the way I love to explain it is imagine your mind is water. Christ at regeneration, rebirth, when you are saved, gives you a new mind. Your water is perfectly clean. That's the default. You don't start Christianity as a dirty water bottle. He's just still working it through, working it through. Then it's never new. What are you being renewed to if you were never new? Does everybody get that? The Bible says, be renewed in your mind. Okay, so bring it back to new. But I've never been new. No, you've never been new. So you're going to keep going in circles and never arrive at a place called new. Your mind is always supposed to be at new. Go to Romans 12 just so everybody can see it. If I'm rewinding something, what does that mean? I can go back to the beginning, right? Those of us who used to do VHS, there was a place where it first started, right? If, you're, if you can rewind it, you just don't keep rewinding, rewinding, rewinding. At some point, you read that thing back to where it needs to be right? If you're repenting of something, you're repenting, you're, you're returning back to a place where you shouldn't have done that thing, and now you're going to do it differently, right? It's not like you never get to a place where you're supposed to be. The default is going back to the beginning of the movie. Do you want to resume playing here or start it from the beginning? When you're renewing your mind, you're starting it from the beginning. That's the word. That's literally what the word means. 
And when you do that, when you do that, when you renew your mind, you transform it to continue to obey that which God wants it to be. So when you look at Christianity, how does it say we start off? As babes, not the walking dead, not the hideous. You start off as babes in Christ, pure and holy. You're supposed to keep that new mind pure. How many know if I keep my children's mind away from the gutter, they'll never know what pornography looks like. They'll never know what vulgarity sounds like. That's how you're supposed to be, like newborn babes. Guards your mind now. Don't go back to those things. Keep it in the state of new. So imagine salvation. Boom. You get a brand new bottle of water. That's your mind. Now you go off and you, you know, you're living your life. Your flesh tempts you, and you put in there something that defiles it, a sin, a thought, an action. Is that bottle of water now a pure bottle of water the way God intended it to be? No. So what do you do? You renew it. You renew it back to the purity. You, you say, this is not okay. This bothers me, this thought, this action. Christ is convicting me. And then what does he do? He cleanses you to put you back in the state of new, back to the default, back to the beginning. So now when you come at that again, you will be transformed in how you act in that next temptation. So think of it like this. Christ had the perfect mind and never lost it. Now, you say, well, that's just good for him. No, he said, be perfect as your heavenly father's perfect. So you're supposed to be just like how Christ was. You're not supposed to say, well, Christ, he did, and I could never do it. No, he literally said, my mind is like the father's mind. Now you be just like the father. And then when people say, well, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know. If, just go to 1 John, please. There's an entire book written so that you can understand how love helps you keep the commands that continue to keep you in the light of what you've been given. That's a whole nother conversation about light. Somebody say light. You are given light at salvation. The light only gets brighter, but it's never darkness. Does everybody get that? I can have a light bulb that's 20 watts. I can have a light bulb that's 1,000 watts, but it's still light. According to the Bible, your light increases as the glory of God shines through your obedience. But that quality of light is always 100% righteous. Does everybody get that? Just want you to see it again. Look at 1 John. These are the words that he uses. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. How much darkness is in God? None. Now watch how it says here. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So if your default is darkness, you are not in light because it's one or the other. Your sinning as a Christian doesn't count as darkness, as a realm, as we talked about before. It's getting you closer to that where you can walk away from the light. But that issue that Christians have does not automatically now count them as darkness. Otherwise, literally, in your heart, God is like, you have light today. You sin, there's darkness. He's flipping you on and off like a switch. You're going to heaven today. Tomorrow you're going to hell. Don't think that thought. You're going, you know, this is now what your salvation is like. Salvation is guarded by the righteousness of God. So these actions that we're doing in our mind, they don't impact our righteousness until we come in unbelief. And if you remember, I've taught you that continual sin is what then takes you out of light. Continual sin is what leads towards unbelief. And now because of that, you're outside of Christ. But as long as you are faithful in Christ to confess your sins, to confess your weaknesses, as I do that, as you do that, we're always in the light. Somebody say in the light. 
Thank you. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we live in the what? If we live in the what? If we live in the light as he is in the what? As he is in the light. So if we live in the light like he's in the light, what does that mean? As we live in the light, there's no darkness because in him there's no darkness. So if we say we're in darkness, then we're not in light. If I say I lack merit, if I say there's some part of me that is not complete, completely righteous, then I am saying some part of me is dark. Am I not? If I need Mary's light, her merit, let's use the example of light. If I say I need Mary's light to be merit to me, righteousness to me, then that means at salvation there is something, um, there is something missing in Christ's light. Does everybody get that? So I come to Christ, Christ, save me, change me. And then I look at my life and I go, oh, when I prayed for Christ to change me, he only changed 50% of me. The rest of it's dark. I need to pray to a saint, get more light, you know, kind of look at puzzle pieces coming together as light. These other parts are dark. And here comes lights from Mary's merit. Here comes light from this deliverance ministry, whatever. So what I'm basically saying is I got light that's not like Christ's light. In Christ's light, there's no darkness. But in the light that I now have, I have darkness. To see the contradiction? So it says here that in Christ there's no darkness at all. So if we claim to live in him, yet walk in darkness, we lie, and the truth is not in us. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from how many sins? All sins. How many sins? All sins. All sins means all sins. Now go with me to uh, uh, 1 John chapter 4. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. How does the Bible describe a Christian? What does the Bible say about a Christian? It says, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. We know this famous passage right here because it says God is love. God is what? God is love. But remember what it also says. Keep going. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how we know love is made complete or love is made perfect among us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. How are we supposed to be made perfect in love knowing that we have confidence on the day of judgment? In this world, we are like Oprah. In this world, we are like what? A pastor. In this world, we are like what? A saint, one more time, in this world we are like Jesus. So as a Christian, as a true Christ follower, you should read Galatians and say, thank you, Jesus. You should say, I have been imputed with the righteousness of God internally in the same way that Abraham was given it at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I have been perfected at the moment of salvation the same way the Old Testament saints waited for their perfection. By the one sacrifice of Christ, I have been made complete. And then whatever you and I deal with in our mind as temptations towards a mortal body of death, we are to count it as a time to repent, to be renewed and be transformed so that this flesh is counted as dead and our spirit makes the flesh its slave unto righteousness. Your body is a living sacrifice unto Christ. You control the body through your spiritual soul. Amen?
And to tie it back into Galatians, go to Galatians chapter 5, which we'll be getting there in just a little bit, but it's good to, to make notice of this now. In Galatians chapter 5, he talks about the deeds of the flesh and the spirit. And look at what he says in round verse 19 of Galatians chapter 5. After he lists, us all, uh, lists off all the deeds of the flesh, it's not the deeds of the soul. It's not the deeds of the mind. It's the deeds of your mortal body. And what I teach people is look what the mortal body of an animal can do. Can an animal have an attitude? Absolutely it can. You haven't raised a dog. Give a dog a treat one day and then don't give it a treat another day. It gets an attitude. Dogs have, see, I got some pet owners up in here. Even birds, my parents raised birds, they have attitudes. And that's okay, brother, because I appreciate you trying to help. But what most people don't understand is that animals have a soul as well. Oh, that freaks us out. Yes, they do. In, in Genesis, we are said to have a human soul, and the land-dwelling animals have animal souls. That's why there's actually good arguments that they may go to heaven. Only good ones, though, half kid and no cats. But listen... The reason why we take that serious is because even modern science has shown to us the level of intelligence these animals have. These land animals have much intelligence. God says he gave it to them. They're not like other animals, the land-dwelling animals. You can go there. It's the same word. We have a soul. They have a soul. But we have a human soul. They have an animal soul. Let's go back to it. Can animals be perverse? Absolutely they can be perverse. They can be undisciplined. Animals can do things out of jealousy. How many have seen a jealous animal before? You're petting on this dog, but this dog doesn't get pet, so that one gets jealous. My point in saying all of that is if an animal's flesh can behave as such, how much more does your flesh have a desire to do as such? See, your flesh doesn't need another soul. Like, you don't have a soul within a soul. You have one born-again soul, but a flesh that still desires to be fed, a flesh that desires attention, and so forth and so on. That's why when they do neuroscience, we as Christians get all excited because the brain is not your soul. It's a part of your flesh. They say animals can have dreams. They have an animal soul, and they say they can have dreams. Why? Because their brain is complex, able to put together their memories and their different thoughts, that they're able to do these things. Even some monkeys and different animals can be trained to do sign language. Why is that? Because they have an intelligence. Your brain, though, is still a part of your flesh. Your brain turns into dust after you die, does it not? But your mind uses your brain. This is where we go into cognitive therapy, how your mind retrains your brain. You can literally get books, retrain your brain. Well, who's retraining your brain if you're just a brain? How does a broken hard drive fix itself? How can you have AIDS and give yourself blood transfusion and expect to heal yourself? This is where we talk to those who do the brain scans. Don't you see the evidence for the soul? Because they see that the brain lights up, but then they speak to the person and say, now change your thoughts and watch how your brain lights up differently. We use our brain like a pianist uses a piano or like a pilot flies a plane. They're not the plane, but they use it. And that's why we have to be kind and compassionate to people who have mental illnesses because it's no different than me having the illness of the eye needing glasses. Some people's minds don't function correct. We've tried to say everything's a demon. Schizophrenia, as they've seen in brain scans, lights up the parts of their brain exactly how yours does when you hear an actual thing through your ears. Theirs are lighting up in the same frequency 
frequencies when they have thoughts in their mind. So the thoughts in their mind come with the, found, uh, the foundation of voice. They light up the same part of their, their lobes that have to do with hearing a voice. That's why they don't know. Like if you watch the movie A Beautiful Mind, he didn't have demons. He just had a brain that was lighting off his thoughts as if he was hearing a word. Because how do you actually know the difference? I'll trip you out right now. When you dream, do you hear people talk? I do. In my dreams, I hear people talk. I'm not in a dream and they're sign languaging to me. But did it come into your ear? No, your brain fires off the sounds. In your dreams, you're hearing the sounds of people talking. But there's actually nobody talking in your room. Don't you see people in your dreams? Are they in your house? Or don't you go places in your dreams? But, you're not in your, but that's not in your house, right? Your brain is a wonderful masterpiece, but it's death now. It's been corrupted. It's firing the wrong thoughts and temptations. Are you guys tracking with me? That's literally what the Bible says when it says the acts of the flesh. It's literally talking about your flesh, that flesh that dies. Now notice here at the end, go to verse 27. Uh, excuse me, of 25, 24. There we go. Can I get a 23? Look at 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the what? The flesh with its passions and desires. Are you an it? You're not an it, but your flesh is an it. Your brain is not a he or a she, it's an it. Yes, it has masculine uh, chemicals or masculine formation or your body has certain things that make it a male or a female, but by definition, it is an it. Your flesh is not a person. And so sometimes people ask, will we retain gender in heaven without our flesh? It's a good question, and I think we will because God can create the identity of gender without having a body. But your body is more than just its chemicals and its composition. It is a temple, in other words, for that soul. And so as your soul generates itself, manifests itself through the body as a Christian, specifically, you have to discern what is of God, what is of the spirit, and what is of that flesh, what is of that, that nature that comes natural to you. That's why if you think about it, non-Christians tap into this all the time, and the Bible calls this elemental spiritual. Uh, it's elemental uh, spirituality. When Buddhists deny themselves of food, they're practicing self-discipline, some that Christians don't even have. Many Christians are fat and obese. Why? I used to be a fat and obese preacher. One preacher said I was taught that the only thing that was okay to do was go to church and eat. That's why I became a fat preacher. That's what the pastor said. I, I was told the only thing that, that was okay was to go, eat food and go to church, so I became a fat preacher. Here I am. Pray for me. But listen, so, so we're overweight. Those of us who have been overweight, right? Do you have a demon of overweightness? Do you need more merit from Mary? No, you need to discipline your flesh. Your flesh has deceived you that you're hungry when it doesn't need more food. So your flesh did that. Same thing with sexual drive. I put any man into a sexual temptation, he will be sexually tempted no matter how much he loves his wife, no matter how pure and holy he's been. Why? Because the body reacts to hormones, uh, pheromones, to stimulation of the eyes. Now, do, does that person have to act on those things? Absolutely not. But to say you're going to get away from those things, the only way you will is if you try to be like a Buddhist. Hide yourself from the world, walk on rice paper, and only think about nothing while you're something thinking about nothing, which is a contradiction. Do you understand? Nothing doesn't even exist, but they try to think about it. So what is the point there? The point is we have flesh, and that flesh has desires. That's why you think the way you do. That's why you and I have personalities. You didn't create a personality. A personality was developed between your soul and your flesh over time. 
That's why some of you, you get agitated when it's hot because your flesh doesn't like hot, and over time you demanded it to be cold, and now when you're hot, you feel like people aren't meeting your demands, and you begin to react a certain way in the flesh. That's why women a certain time of the month change in their attitudes, at least most do, at least in my house, I should say. <laughs> can't, cast out the, can't cast out the demon of the monthly. Are you listening to me? <laughs> Seriously, I've had a gift of discerning of spirits with my wife since we were dating. I started to notice something around this time of the month changes in you. Where is this coming from? So I began to understand her cycle. And I'm telling you, I can totally forget. I will be oblivious, but all of a sudden we'll be talking and then she'll start crying. And then I'll come on over to and hug her and I go, when's your period? And then she'll say, oh, it's coming up next week. And I'm like, here we are, the week before the period. Here it is. Sorry to put my wife out there like that. But it's the same thing with guys. Guys are hangry. Guys act a certain way. My wife can tell whether or not I have eaten when I come home. Because one of my favorite things to do is go outside and do stuff for eight hours and not eat. That's just what I do. I don't know why I always do it. And she can tell. Because if I come home and I'm like, hey, kids, what's going on? I'm greeting them. She knows I got something to eat. If I come home and I'm like, why is this dirty? Why is this like this? You kids go over there. She's like, you haven't eaten anything all day, have you? And I'm like, no, I haven't eaten anything. So she's trying to slide me some food because I get hangry. How many know that's your flesh? You did not enter into a different realm. You did not lose the mind of Christ. You did not have a different spirit in you. You still had the Holy Spirit. You were still in the realm of the Spirit. You still had the mind of Christ. But what did you do? You gave that mind, those thoughts over to the flesh, this earthly body. And the Bible talks about this as a contradiction. And, it, and the Bible calls a Christian that lives in this state a carnal Christian. Go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Bible calls this person a carnal Christian, but they are still very much a Christian. They are just acting as a baby. And how many know that illustration helps us out now, the baby Christian? Because what have babies not realized that, that they can do is that they can discipline their flesh, right? How many understand that? Go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. What has a baby not realized it can do? It can wait to eat. So what does it do when it's hungry? It starts crying out. It hasn't learned that yet. It's a babe, right? What has a baby not learned uh, yet? That it can poop and pee in a potty. It's, it only knows it can poop and pee on itself right now, right? It, it doesn't know. But as the baby grows, what does the baby now realize? As the baby gets transformed in its size, it's still a baby, it's still a baby. It didn't transform in its nature. It's still a human baby. Is everybody getting that? Hey, you're, you're still a baby. You're just, well, I'm a 45-year-old baby. If we're just talking about someone born, I am a born person, and I was born 45 years ago. In other words, I was a born human. I am still a born human. The only difference between a born human today, like me, that's 40, going to be 45 years old, versus a born human like this little child right here that's now three years old, is he or she does not know how to discipline their flesh. Everybody look at Titus over there. Everybody say, hi, Titus. See, he doesn't know how not to go back up in his mother's womb. He wants to go back up in his mother. He'll probably even start crying. Pray for church kids. But see, he doesn't know because he hasn't grown into that. He hasn't transformed into that. But remember, when he grows from three to now like my uh, nine-year-old, raise your hands, Lucas. Everybody say hi to Lucas. I've got two mini-me's over there at different stages of, of life. So if you want to see what I was like at nine, look at this one. You want to see what I was like at three, these little mini-me's. 
The nine-year-old, see, he doesn't get embarrassed. He doesn't want to try to go up into his mother's womb and hide, right? He, he, he knows how to use the bathroom. But listen, between, between these three stages, between Titus, the three-year-old, Lucas, the nine-year-old, and me, the 45-year-old, are we any different as humans? No, we have just been transformed in our humanness as we've grown. Our humanness has transformed into different images in the sense of what it looks like, but at its root, the DNA, human. Male, etc. And so what do we do? Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Do you see? That's what a baby Christian is like. A baby Christian does not know yet how to live discipline. They do not know yet how to say no to the flesh. They're still a Christian. They still have the possession, uh, the Holy Spirit possesses them, but they don't know how to live by it. Those who live by the Holy Spirit will grow in the Holy Spirit. Somebody say grow up before God throws up. Amen. Well, I got to be careful when I say we're going to go to a certain place in the Bible, I guess, because I thought we were going to get to chapter 4, and I didn't even get hardly into chapter 3. Uh, Vinny, would you come, please? Vinny, come up here. Let's go back to chapter 3, though. Let's at least... Look at that passage again. Look at Galatians chapter 3. By God's grace, I'm glad we clarified it because that's what I wanted to explain from verse 6. So Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. According to Hebrews, when did Abraham get the full deposit of the promise of righteousness? When did he get it? Not when he just believed, but when? When the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. So he was given righteousness as a status between him and God. He was right with God. And so that was a little bit of a trick question. But I should have clarified, when was he given the righteousness of his nature, the imputation, so that he could become righteous through and through, born again? When did he receive that? At the resurrection of Jesus. That's why it says in Hebrews, he had not received it yet. Let me just go back to this because maybe you guys got lost in a lot of things we said. I know a lot of teaching happened here. But go back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39, please. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. These were all commended for their faith. Did Abraham have faith? Yes. Yet none of them received what was promised. What did he not receive that was promised to him? Righteousness as a nature. What did he receive in Genesis 12 in regard to righteousness? In his relationship with God, he was no longer reckoned as a sinner. He was made right in the eyes of God. But had he received a new nature? Was he able at death to enter into the presence of God? No. He had to wait for the death, burial, and resurrection so that together with us, and the us are the contemporary apostles, the first generation of regeneration. Listen, the apostles were the first generation of regeneration. Go to John chapter 20. Let me just take my time here. I'm glad that we're learning. Can I hear an amen if you're learning? I'd, like I said, I can show every verse here. And maybe I will. Maybe I will by God's grace because it won't take long. But I'll show you that I'm not making this up. So you can see it walked along a little bit clearer. And you can take notes and go back home and study and not take my word for it. Look at John chapter 20. 
John chapter 20, verse 21. At the resurrection, Jesus meets with his apostles. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, What? Receive the Holy Spirit. So did they have the Holy Spirit in their nature as a divine relationship up until that point? No. The Holy Spirit would come on them and come off them, just like he did with the, uh, the prophets. And that's what you read about Samson and Saul. The Holy Spirit would come on and come off. And David would have the Holy Spirit come on and come off. And David began to long for the temple. He said, hey, I noticed this. The Spirit comes on me and comes off, but when I see the temple, the presence is always there. So he says, better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. He said, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, those who have clean hands and a pure heart? Oh, that I may dwell in your house all the days of my life. You see, he understood what's happening in his life spiritually was temporary. Spirit would come on and spirit would leave. But he noticed in the temple it never left. So he longed to be unified with the presence of God that way. That's what Abraham wanted. That's what all of those saints wanted, going back to the Hebrews passage. And that had been promised to them. It had been promised that that's what they would have. That it wasn't the land made of dirt, which was the promised land. The promised land was the dirt in their life, the body. Does everybody get that? The promised land is this dirt, not just that earthly dirt. Though it's both and, we get that dirt, but it's primarily here. The land of Israel belongs to God. He'll rule and reign from there. But how many know what's more important than the land of Israel is the land of the hearts here where he dwells with us, right? Now go to Ephesians chapter 4, please. In Ephesians chapter 4, some of you have probably read it just like I did. That's okay. and You didn't understand it. You're like, that's some poetic language. What in the world's going on? Well, we're going to share with you. Just take our time. Look at he, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, if you cannot explain why grace has been given to us in this sentence here, then you misunderstand the entire point of why he said the sentence. How many know there's things in the Bible for a reason? It doesn't just say, God gave us grace, and now let's go on to talk about what grace means. No, he's done that in other places of Ephesians in chapter 2. But now he is going to explain how grace came, and he's going to put it on a timeline. Here it is. But to each one of us, those living at that time who experienced this, grace was given us as Christ apportioned it. This is why it said, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So he's going up and he's bringing those who were in captivity with him. He's going up and he's dropping gifts down as he's going up. To hell with Santa, worship Jesus, amen? This is what my Jesus does. I paused for a minute, and I felt the Holy Ghost say, you can say it. You can say it. I give you permission. Sometimes the Holy Spirit's like, no, don't do it. So he's the one going up, and then he's sending gifts. Why are these people called captives? Like how I am saying is Abraham and these others. Why are they captive? Because they could not leave this place of paradise to go be with their God face to face. They couldn't leave from there. 
They had to wait. Abraham couldn't go like, hey, man, I'm taking off. I'm going to go to the throne room now. He could not do that. He had to wait there until Christ came. Now it explains it even more. And I I say this out of all kindness. Some of you have read this and you didn't even understand what you were reading. Now you'll understand. What does, because Paul's preaching now, what does he ascended mean? Except he also descended to the lower earthly regions. That place, the lower earthly regions, plural, is called Sheol the place of the grave, the place of the dead. In that place known as Sheol, there are two regions. We see them in the story of Lazarus. Get that passage ready for me, please, of the parable. The two regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now do you get it? He's in the grave. He descends to the earthly regions, okay? Then he takes those that were captive in the region called Abraham's bosom. Stay on the passage, please. On Abraham's, in Abraham's bosom, and he brings them back up. The passage that we were on. Let's not go get ahead of ourselves. Thank you. Now, go with me to 1 Peter. Go with me to 1 Peter. Might be Second Peter, but let me make sure here. Yes, it's Second Peter. Go to Second Peter. Go to Second Peter. To the spirits now in prison, he preached. Let me get it for you guys here. Oh, is it James? Help me, Lord. Spirits in prison. Okay. No, it's 2 Peter. It's in multiple places, but this is the one I want. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Now notice this here. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, there have been angels in the place of punishment ever since the fall. Some of them have already been there. Do you guys get it? Not every angel is a free angel to go around like a demon. Some have already been there, okay? If he did not, it says, for God did not spare his uh, spare angels when they sinned, but he sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, okay? Now that's the first place that I want you to see. Now go to 1 Peter chapter 3. So there is a place of judgment. Some angels have, uh, angels have been there. Who else has been in that region? That, so there's a region of blessing and there's a region of curse. There's a region of reward and there's a region of punishment. Now go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now go there and, and look at verse 18. Chapter 3 verse 18 of 1 Peter. For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So watch. Put to death in the body, made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. We learn that some of them are angels, but notice who else is there. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. 
So he preached to them. Do you get it? Okay. So what does Ephesians teach us? He who ascended is also he who descended into the lower regions. We know there's at least one, and in that one of judgment, we know that there's a place where the angels are, some fallen angels are there, and there's also people there. Now, let's go to the parable. And what is it, Matthew? Okay, Luke chapter what? Go to Luke chapter 16 and notice that there's another region that's there. Luke chapter 16, going on down to where it talks about Lazarus and the rich man. There we go. Now notice this here, verse 22 of Luke chapter 16. The time came when the beggar died. His name is Lazarus. And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Does it say they carried him to heaven? This is a part of Sheol. This is the other region. You've learned about the place of punishment, have you not? The one place where the fallen angels are, as well as those even from the time of uh, Noah's flood have been. Okay, so now he is taken to Abraham's side. This is that other region. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, which is another word for Hades, in hell. In hell where he was in torment. So now we have this place called Abraham's side as a region, and then we have hell. There's no other regions we know of. Where he was in torment. He looked up and he saw Abraham far away. So the regions looked like they were stacked on each other. The lower region is the place where the imprisoned spirits were being punished, as well as those fallen angels. And the upper region, moving on up, was where Abraham was at. Does everybody get it? Bible time here. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away. So they could see each other, but they were not able to get to each other. With Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this what? In this fire. So where he's at, there's fire, and we know there's at least a couple things where they're at. There's people that they recognize, and there's water. Generally, where there's water, there's life. So there's something good going on up there with people and water, something bad going on there with fire. Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us, you, uh, it's between us and you, a great chasm has been placed been set in place, that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So what's the last thing that we learn here? There's a chasm. So in review, in review, uh, go to Galatians chapter 3, 6 in the notes, please. In review, when Abraham was given righteousness, was he given righteousness at that time in his nature with an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. No. What was he given at that time? The promise that he will have that one day. And that until that day, he will be right in God's eyes because there was nothing else for him to do. He will be saved. But where was he going to go? He's going to go to a place that will eventually get nicknamed after him. He's going to go to an, uh, what would be known as in a region below earth but it's above the tormenting place. He's going to go there. And then as we read in Ephesians chapter 4, Jesus is going to go there. 
How do I think it worked with 1 Peter and 2 Peter? I think Jesus goes down first to the lowest region, rebukes all of them, condemns the angels, condemns the wicked, and says, what you guys were rejecting in part is now me in full. This is your punishment. What you thought was just Moses or Noah or Jeremiah was me speaking, so I'm coming to tell you, you are now suffering the just judgment of me, your creator. Then he moved on up to the party and he said, guys, y'all about ready to come out of here? I've come to set the captive free. I'm bringing you up into my pre- the presence of my father as I present you to my father as the children he has given me. It literally says, here they are. Go to Isaiah 53. Here I am and the children you have given me. The offspring of Jesus, though he was not married, the all, go all the way down to the end of 30, uh, chapter 53. The offspring of Jesus are the saints. Look at what it says. For I, uh, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and it was numbered with the transgressors. Uh, go up a little bit. It's, it's right before this. There we go. It was uh, God's will for him to suffer and he will see his offspring and prolong his days. See, Jesus comes now with the offspring and brings it to the Father. And then what does he do? At Pentecost, he sends the Holy Spirit so that now us tying it all together can get everything those people had to wait for. That together with them, we are now made perfect. So we're not waiting for anything else in in pertaining to our soul being saved, our mind, any of those things that's been given to us in Christ. What we're simply waiting now is for the resurrection so that the earthly body can have a body like him. So going back one last time to Galatians chapter um, 3, verse 6. So when Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. It was imputed to him, not only in that moment that he know he would be in the right standing with God, but he knew that the promise would come to pass. And so when we, Lord willing, go back into the details of chapter 3 here, we can understand what Paul's talking about, how precious that is. Because this is that what they had all been waiting for. This is that promise. And now we're not supposed to go back to try to earn it through our law, uh, the law rather. And we're not supposed to try to earn it by more merit of saints. And we're not supposed to try to get it by looking at our flesh as a demon and try to keep getting it cast out of us. We'll glorify God as we receive that righteousness and live in it. So imagine if my son was confused and he kept saying, I'm not a white rostic, I'm a brown, I'm a whatever. And I kept saying, no, that's not who you are, man. You are a white rostic. I would want him to stop doubting who he was and start knowing who he is. Does everybody get that? So when we keep saying as Christians, well, I'm just a sinner, I'm just a sinner, you're doubting what Christ did in you. When you keep thinking that the enemy can forge a weapon against you that shall prosper, you keep giving the enemy too much credit. And when you keep saying, well, my flesh, my flesh, my flesh, and you don't count it as crucified, you're allowing things that are not your identity to control you. The identity of the Christian is a child of God. That's why we're called now children of Abraham, because we're just like him. And thankfully, Galatians was written at a time when we can relate to it. Every time I've gone through the book of Galatians, great things have happened in my life, and this is no different. And so I pray for each one of you 
that as you study, go ahead, go back into, you know, on your own studies, chapter 3, chapter 4, read ahead and see what's waiting for us. See that all God is asking, this in closing now, Galatians 5, we'll get to it eventually. I want you to see what we're eventually going to get to. Look at what Galatians 5 says in chapter 1. Chapter 5, verse 1, rather. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So that's why when I talk to my Roman Catholic friends, I'm not trying to put you down. I'm trying to keep you free. And if you're not saved, I want you to get saved and never be under bondage. That's why I care about every person in this church. I don't want you to be put under a fasting schedule of some prophet that you've seen online and you think, well, I got to fast like them. Otherwise, I'm not going to be righteous. If you fast, do it as unto the Lord, but not because you have to be righteous. Or if you go, man, I don't, you know, like maybe you're a busy stay-at-home mom or your mom that's working as well, and you go, I can't read my Bible like I, like I used to when I first got saved, and I feel so condemned, like I'm not a good Christian. Don't put yourself under that bondage. God will give you creative ways to read your Bible and pray. What's most important is standing firm in your freedom. I would rather you be honest and say, yeah, my devotionals sometimes change, my Bible reading has changed, than for you to go back into bondage. Because a Muslim can pray five times a day but not talk to God. You understand what I'm saying? Mormons can read their Bible every day but never get a word from the Lord, right? Uh, Hindus can fast but never get a breakthrough. You see, it's not those things that make us free. Christ alone makes us free. So that's where I want you to stand as your pastor. That's where I care about you because then you can say, you know what? There was a season of my life I prayed two hours a day. Now I pray a half hour a day. But I love Jesus all the same. There was a season of my life I fasted three days a week. Now I fast a couple times a year, and I'm still free, and God's kept me blessed. There was a time I memorized a scripture a day, 365 a year. Now I try to memorize a few a month, and I'm still learning the word of God. I used to witness to every person. If I didn't, I had to go back into the store. But now I know it's okay for me to get my hamburger and move on. You won't be put under bondage by serving Christ, you'll see when we get to the Spirit that the Spirit leads you. He'll lead you into worship. Worship me this way. That's why I was teaching you guys about the hymns at the beginning. I used to always worship the songs, then I worship the hymns, now I do both. And you'll realize that all of this will come in and out of your life as growth, and you'll keep growing, but you won't be in bondage to anything. Otherwise, you'll be in bondage and you'll say, oh man, you know, I didn't do X, Y, and Z, I don't feel right. If you don't feel righteous because you didn't do something that you normally do, your righteousness is not coming from Christ. It's coming from your thing. And I don't mean to get you out of conviction because conviction's good. But I'm telling you, you will sometimes not feel right. You'll feel like, man, I'm not right because I didn't do X, Y, and Z. What are you now putting your hope in? Those things you do. I have to do that to feel right. And it's not right. That's not good. Those who have dieted, and it's the same thing in self-discipline with money, those who become like that become in, 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 in their diet, they become anorexic. They become con- condemned by the food. Those who become so strict in their finances, they become cheap. I've met cheap people. They're great at budgeting, but they're never generous because they live now in fear, don't they? Whoa, I can't eat that carb or I'm going to become fat. I'm going, you know, I can't do this. And then what they do now is they let food control them the other way. Same thing with finance. Well, I used to waste money all the time, but I don't do that anymore. I do this. Yeah, but you never do the other things. Right? You never, you never enjoy the life that God has given you. And so in that perfect balance of the spirit and in truth, you're going to grow in your freedom. 
And when, you, when it's time to save, you're going to save. When it's time to fast, you're going to fast. When it's time to read your Bible, you're going to read your Bible. When it's time to worship, you're going to do it, and you're going to do it with joy. You're going to love being at church till 2 in the, morning, two in the afternoon. Amen? You're not going to think it's 1 o'clock, i got to go. You're going to say, keep preaching, Pastor. No, I'm kidding. Let's all go. You guys ready to go? Let's stand up and give it up for Jesus. Amen? Come on. Somebody say, free indeed. Amen. Band and altar workers, would you come, please? I love pastoring people in these moments. You enjoying it, my brother? Share something that you've been getting out of these moments as the band and altar workers come. Guys, can we turn on this mic, please? I want to hear a testimony. Vinny's always faithful. I thank you for what you do with the worship ministry. Yeah, go ahead. What do you get out of this time? I know it's different than the first service. We go so deep in this one. And sometimes I feel bad for them, but then other times I see so many people growing and learning during this, you know? Yeah, what are you getting out of it? Sorry to put you on the spot. Anthony, come on up here, man. I'm going to put you on the spot. You like being on the spot. Come on. I'm half kidding. Tell me what you've been getting out of this, bro. Give me some feedback. Um, I just realized that text more and more where it says that the truth shall set you free. Yeah. And in many ways it sets you free where you see the freedom you have in Christ. Yeah. Because I came from a church where it's like you stay struggling in your sin and that's who you are and that's what you deal yeah. with your whole life. Coming here and I realized, no, there's freedom in Christ. Yeah. And then seeing this text come to life, you know, how Christ did his mission came yeah. and set the captives free just open your eyes to the power of the word of God amen thank you for that um, Joe B one of our uh, great students of the word here he's getting his master's degree also our youth director can we give it up for Joe B Joe B come grab this mic tell me what you're getting out of this give me some depth then I'll have you go next just to prepare you there you go well I'm, I'm just learning that uh, you know legalism it, it kind of it nullifies the word of God it does and it nullifies your walk yeah. And who you are in Christ. So it like detracts and takes away from Christ's finished work. Yeah. So that's that's kind of what I've been getting a lot from this. Amen. That's so good. As Jocelyn gets ready to share, thank you, Joe B. I just want to say this. Last time I was going through the book of Galatians, I was teaching it in Bible college. And I began to realize during that time that because the church was smaller, we only had one service, and I did most of the discipleship with my wife, that everybody was taking on my same convictions. So I didn't listen to secular music. Nobody listened to secular music. I didn't dance. Nobody danced. Cynthia and I were just talking about this. She remembers this. She was a part of the church then. And I remember, and I got to say this with uh, Griselda, wherever she is. There you go. I remember being here because the church used to be opposite. I always, I get a tear when I think about it. But she was on her way to go see a movie with some of the, the folks. Do you remember what movie that was? It's like a superhero movie or some kind. Transformers. And I, I feel ashamed to say this, but I got to be honest. I, I did this. I rebuked her in front of all the young people that were going to go with her. And that started to bring conviction to my heart. I wish it would have changed me immediately, but it didn't. But it was when I was doing the Galatians class, and I was forced to reconcile this, and the Lord will show you what you're dealing with when you read this. It's going to be a little different for everybody. So I started reading this, and the Lord said, Joe, I want you to find everything you tell people to do in the scriptures 
before you tell them to do it. Sounds easy enough. Sounds pretty basic as a pastor. So, so secular music. Going through the pages. Okay. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, don't listen to bad stuff. I'm not trying to find a scripture that just says it, but then it's like, is it bad to, to hear, I can be your hero, baby. Where's my wife? I can take away the pain. I'm like, but that's kind of good, you know. The Bible says, you even being wicked know how to give good gifts to your children. So I realized, like, there's some good that's even in bad people. So then I said, okay, well, secular music, I don't have that. Okay, no watching Transformers. Where is it in the Bible? I'm like, okay, don't set your eyes on vanity. So this is the best I could get. And I'm thinking, but they tell stories in the Bible all the time. Some that even came from other cultures, they tell. Paul tells a story. They tell other stories. These were a part of their traditions. Jewish people had their myths that they would tell. Bible says don't give much time to it, but he didn't say like it was actually sin. He just said don't believe those Jewish myths, you know. So I go, okay, I can't find anything about movies. I can't find anything about secular music. Okay, what about dancing? Going through the scripture, can't see anywhere it tells us not to dance. Well, it says not to be perverse. Okay, so don't back it up to gasolina. I'm like, that's probably perverse. I could, I could probably take dirty dancing and put it under perverse, but it's come on, baby, let's do the twist. Sorry for you guys behind me, but come. I'm like, I'm like, is that perverse? I don't think so. I went back to them, and they'll tell you. And I said, please forgive me. We went before our church, and we said, this is what we'll do. We'll preach everything that is in the Scripture, and we'll hold you accountable to it. But to the rest of these things, we're going to send you and your family or you as a single to go into your prayer closet, and you talk to Jesus. And now if you were to ask people, like if we had like a breakout group after this service, like if it was a conference, because sometimes I feel like these are like conferences more than just services. And I said, okay, break off into groups, families with families, singles with singles, talk to each other. Everybody would say different things. If I said, now ask each other five questions. What do you think about public school? Some would say, you know what? I really don't have a choice, but I send my kids to public school. I get a scripture like Daniel. Even in Babylon, they can do good. Another one says, well, I feel like I should homeschool because the Bible says that this, the, the children belong to the Lord and we should raise them up as me and my house. And then both can look at each other and go, great, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you as a mom that sends your children to public school. Go and make them Daniels. And then the one can say, I'm praying for you as you stay home and you knit together and you churn your own butter as homeschoolers do. No, I'm kidding. Right? Same thing. And then you could ask somebody, because I went through the same thing with alcohol. Okay, ask it, do you drink? Yes or no? Somebody goes, no, you know what? My parents were alcoholics. When I was a young adult, I really overdid it. I just prefer to keep alcohol out of my house. Another person says, you know, I'm 21 years old. I'm old enough. I drink in moderation. I keep accountable. And then both can say, okay, pray for me. And you just go through life as Christians, you'll begin to find people like that that are different than you, have different understandings of their grace and space, and then what we do is just support each other. But what we can say is, okay, this is sexual perversion, sex outside of marriage. Okay, that's sin. You know, adultery, that's sin, right? Because the Bible says the deeds of the flesh are what? Obvious. And we're going to do that and not do that. And then what are the things we're going to do? Love, joy, peace, patience, God, through the Spirit. Amen. Brother, would you pray for us? Because I feel like I did a lot of talking. I want them to hear a prayer from you. And then we'll dismiss. I know I've kept you for a while. And thank you, Second Service, for really bearing with me. As you can see, I'm learning as you're learning. And so just pray for them. And those who want to come for prayer, come on up. Oh, I got you. There you go. So, no, Jocelyn's going to testify. Please, go ahead. What has this done for you? Um, I learned through the Bible. 
guys so much today. I was looking over at Jazzy, and I was like, Jazzy, I did not know that. Um, so of just about, like, all the people of the past, how they still had that promise, I never really fully understood that. And a couple weeks ago, I was street evangelizing, and a girl was, uh, you know, trying to defend her sin and everything. She was like, well, what about all of them? Like, they never made it, and I didn't know, so I just kind of, like, skipped over that. But but now today, I know. Like, so if, I, if someone ever tries to, you know, trump me up with that, I'll be able to be like, they did. They they believed in Yahweh, and they had the promise. And so you repent. No, I'm just kidding. And so, yeah, this is so good. It was like God answered that so that he can help me, and I just love gathering together. Oh, amen. Let's give it up for Jocelyn. Amen, brother. He's going to pray with that mic. And then, like I said, we'll worship. I'm sure they have a song for us, but if you have to go, we understand. We've been a while. Thank you. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this day, God. We thank you for everything you have done and everything you're going to do, God. Lord, God, we thank you for the freedom, Lord, God, we have in Christ, Lord, that we're able to walk in freedom, Lord, God, be able to be set free by your precious blood, Lord, God. We thank you, Lord, God, that you are able to walk with us, Lord, God, that you're able to live in us, Lord, God, that we're able to walk in righteousness, walk in the Spirit, God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you continue to move in our hearts, continue to move our minds, God. I pray, Lord God, that we would not think of ourselves as good, Lord God, or doing good things to be good, Lord God, but we will be able to walk in you just because you, you live in us, God. So have your way in our hearts, have your way in our life, pour out your spirit upon us, Lord God, throughout this week, Lord God. And I pray, Lord God, that we will grow closer and closer into your presence, that we will grow closer and closer to you. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody says, Amen. Amen. God bless you, saints. Have a wonderful day. Praise the Lord.